0: This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast, number 156, Words. I am Hal Hammonds, and I am a citizen of heaven, and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for checking in this week. Words are the tools of my profession. Whether written or spoken, live or recorded, they are the weapons of my warfare, to borrow from 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3. This week we will discuss a word used constantly by preachers like me, and if you ask me, we ought to use it more. The havoc that 300 years of usage can wreak on our vocabulary, the lie we tell ourselves about profanity and what it says about our view of God, and how the smallest of words can have the greatest of impacts. Let's start with what I've been preaching. Alright, I'm going to spend seven minutes here talking about context. Please do not fall asleep on me here. I realize that if your preacher is anything like me, you hear about context a lot. It's some kind of magic formula that preachers recite and preacher counsels to make words mean different things than they're supposed to mean or some such thing as that. It's not gobbledygook. It is not preacher talk. This is the way that we understand what words mean. My go-to example is the word ball. Look up in the dictionary how many definitions there are of the word ball, how they have Practically nothing to do with one another in many instances. We understand what ball we're talking about by looking at the context. If we are reading about Cinderella, for instance, and we find out that she's going to the ball and that this ball is this grand dance sort of thing that's going to happen that evening with the prince and et cetera, et cetera, then it's reasonable to assume that any ball mentioned in the subsequent context is probably going to be that ball. Now, there are exceptions to that. There are innumerable exceptions to that, which, again, we determine by the context. If we find out that Cinderella picks up a ball and puts it away in the process of cleaning up the house, well, clearly that is a different kind of ball. How do we know it's a different kind of ball? Because of the context. By understanding words in their context, they take on meaning for us, and we allow the words oftentimes to simply define themselves. want to go to James chapter 1 and verse 13 and look at the word tempted as an example of a word that is defined by its context. And without defining it in its context, we get ourselves in trouble. James 1 verse 13 reads, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Now, under normal circumstances, the word tempt is not an especially confusing word. We understand what that means. But look at this verse. In the context of, for instance, Colossians 2 verse 9, where Jesus is described as being God in the flesh, the fullness of deity in bodily form. And then Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 tells us that Jesus was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. Now you put these three verses together and you get kind of a classic three-legged paradox. If Jesus is in fact God in the flesh, and if he was in fact tempted like we are, then it's obviously possible to tempt God. If Jesus is God in the flesh and it is impossible to tempt God, then clearly he could not have been tempted like we are. If he was tempted like we are and God cannot be tempted, then clearly Jesus was not God in the flesh. All of that, though, assumes that this idea of tempted in James 1 verse 13 is used in the conventional sense of the word. And it's obvious in the context that that is not the way it's being used. Look at the surrounding verses. Verse number 13 again, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Notice the way that tempted is defined here. you give the Bible a chance, it'll tell you what the words mean. And such is the case in verse 14. Being tempted means being carried away and enticed by the person's own lust. Temptation isn't always described that way. In fact, it's not always described that way in James chapter 1. You back up to verse number 2 where it says, "Considered all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials in the NASB. The word trials is used there. The old King James Version uses the word temptation. It's the same word in Greek. But it's not the same meaning, clearly. Because what we see in verse 14 couldn't possibly be a good thing, and yet it is a good thing in verse 2. Well, we're talking about two different kinds of being tempted. Here in verses 13 and 14, it's saying that temptation is defined very specifically here in this context as being given over to temptation, falling prey to temptation, being made to sin. So when we read in verse 13, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. He himself does not tempt anyone. We're saying that God does not force you to sin any more than you can force God to sin. It's outside of his nature to commit sin, and it's also outside of his nature to force us to commit sin. He's saying here that God is not going to be an excuse for your failures. If you fall victim to sin, it's because you yourself allowed temptation to get a hold of your heart, and if you continue to allow it to take hold of your heart, it will lead you to death. That's just one example, and there are many others we could talk about. Don't tune your preacher out when he starts talking about context. Context can make all the difference, not just in your Bible study, but in your regular conversation. This is what I've been reading. If you ever took a Shakespeare class, you probably struggled somewhat reading language that was the common vernacular 400 years ago. The English language is an evolving sort of thing, perhaps even more than other languages. Robinson Crusoe isn't quite that old. It's only 300 years old instead of 400 years old, and so it reads somewhat easier than Shakespeare, But there are some glitches, no question about it. I'm grateful that the edition that I was reading has a handful of footnotes where a word is used in a particularly unusual way, at least unusual by modern standards. I'll give you an example or two. Crusoe is trying to figure out how it is that he has rice and corn growing in his cave area. He says, I went all over that part of the island where I had been before, peering into every corner and under every rock to see for more of it, but I could not find any. At last it occurred to my thoughts that I had shook a bag of chicken's meat out in that place, and then the wonders began to cease. Obviously, in our vernacular, chicken's meat would refer to breasts and legs and thighs and wings and such. Couldn't possibly mean that here. Well, the footnote says that meat here refers to food. Now, if you're used to reading the King James Bible, that doesn't take you by surprise necessarily, because meat is sometimes used as a reference to food in general, not necessarily what we would call the flesh of an animal or a fish. When Jesus talks to his disciples after the conversation with the woman at the well in John chapter 4, he says, I have meat that you know not of. That meat is talking about food in a more general sort of sense. Here's another example. After having found a human footprint and reflecting on what it might be to find humans, possibly dangerous humans, on his island, he remarks, I looked back with some horror upon the thoughts of what my condition would have been if I had chopped upon them and been discovered before that, when naked and armed, except with one gun. Chopped upon them. Well, we wouldn't have known that that meant just to come upon somebody suddenly if we'd just seen the word on a page without a context. In the context, it makes some sense, though. Not to belabor the point from the previous segment, but context can help us define a word that seems completely out of place, chopping upon something apparently 300 years ago referred to just kind of stumbling upon it by accident. One other before we move on. He writes, I found Friday still had a hankering stomach after some of the flesh and was still cannibal in his nature, but I discovered so much abhorrence at the very thought of it and at the least appearance of it that he durst not discover it. For if I had by some means let him know that I would kill him if he offered it. Discovered here in this context." refers to being revealed, not like you discover cold fusion or some such thing as that. Discovering something means uncovering, which is to say revealing it. Well, you look at the word a little more carefully, look at the roots behind it, that kind of makes some sense. But again, the biggest key to all of this is not understanding your Greek and Latin roots, not understanding Elizabethan culture or the culture of other ancient times, The main key to understanding these things is understanding the context and putting in a little bit of effort. This is evidence, and we could go on and on, but we won't, that as we live in a society, as society evolves, the language is going to evolve along with it. That's neither a good thing nor a bad thing. It can be an inconvenient thing sometimes. And it's one reason why we might prefer to read a translation of the Bible that's somewhat more modern than the King James Bible. The so-called original King James Bible has been tweaked somewhat. The version that we read commonly is from more or less Daniel Defoe's time, but it can read very awkwardly sometimes. 2 Timothy 2 verse 15 is the classic example there. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. I had that verse drilled into me as a child, as an admonition to study my Bible On a regular basis. Well, that's not really what the word study means in that context, and that's why more modern versions translate it as give diligence or some such thing. Now, that's not an abuse of the passage to go to 2 Timothy 2 verse 15 and encourage people to study their Bible. It fits in with the idea of giving diligence, but it's not really the core meaning of the text. Now, the difference between society's words and God's words is very important, and that's really the point that I wanted to make. Our society may very well change the meaning of literally to mean figuratively, which is exactly the opposite of what literally is supposed to mean. Don't get me started on that. But God's words don't change. When God gives us his words in the Bible, they mean what they have always meant. And we are at an advantage that the words given to us in Hebrew and Aramaic and in Koine Greek Do not evolve around a culture because the culture isn't there anymore, not in the same sense at least. The words that we read in the Bible mean what they have always meant, regardless of what English word or Spanish word or whatever kind of word is used to represent those words. And don't let an opportunity to talk about baptism pass. We see Romans 6 verse 4 telling us that baptism is a burial. We are buried with Jesus in baptism. 1 Peter 3 verse 21 talks about how baptism is akin to the deliverance in Noah's day. Noah got on the ark. We get into baptism as the world is overwhelmed with water. Galatians 3 verse 27 says that we are clothed with Christ when we put Jesus on in baptism. All of these words are clues to what baptism actually means. Baptism is a burial. It's an overwhelming. It has always been that, and it couldn't possibly be anything else according to the scriptures. Now, if you look at a modern dictionary, you'll find all kinds of definitions for baptism, and that's fine as far as the world's terminology goes. If the world wants to call a sprinkling of water or a pouring of water or a personal emotional experience or whatever as a baptism, that's their business. But when we go to the Bible to find out what I must do to be saved, and we're told in Acts 2.38 that we need to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus— We go to the Bible to find out what that word means. So when we're dealing with his principles and we're looking at his words, we need to respect them for what they are, not what we want them to be or what other people say they are. This is what I've been hearing. I had a friend back in college who had the foulest mouth I think I have ever Known in my life, she was just vulgar, profane, coarse, whatever term you want to use. If there is a word that your parents taught you not to use. She used the word, and oftentimes, after having said a word or more likely a series of words along those lines, she would just shake her head and say, "I don't care; they're just words; they're just words, profanity, vulgarity, etc. It didn't matter as far as she was concerned. It was just words. I find that concept fascinating. Because words are, as I've been mentioning already, some of the most important things that we have. If I were to flash back to 16-year-old Hal, and if the girl that Hal was currently crushing on were to walk up to him and say, I love you, those words would have meant everything. And if the girl had laughed afterward and said, Nah, they were just words. Hal would have been devastated. Words don't mean anything when they don't mean anything to us. In fact, though, words are tremendously important. They show us to be who we are at our core. It may very well be that we are a coarse and vulgar and profane person. Profanity, in its purest sense, is taking something that is holy and treating it in an unholy way we have used the word more broadly in our culture to describe any kind of inappropriate language or virtually any kind but at its core that which is profane whether it's words or whether it's behaviors etc it's talking about an unholy treatment of what ought to be holy psalm 105 verse 3 and many other passages talk about how the name of god is holy And that passage is saying more than just you should not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Where the name of God goes, God goes. The way that the name of God is treated is the way that we are treating God. If you're at a political rally and a candidate mentions the name of the opponent and boos and catcalls come up from the audience, that's because of a disrespect, not because of the letters placed in particular tandem, but by the person who is represented by that word, by that name. The name of God represents God. If I put my name on an article or a sermon or a book, that's a little piece of me that goes out there. It reflects on my character. I want it to reflect on my character. That's why I put my name on it. And that's why we need to treat holy things in a holy way. And by the way, when I say holy here, I'm not talking necessarily about good things. We're talking about elevated things, spiritual things. There's an interesting little anecdote given to us in the short book of Jude. Jude verse 8 tells us, Yet in the same way these men, these wicked men that he's talking about, false teachers, also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties, But when Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Now, there's a whole bunch of rabbits that we could chase there. But the point here is that Michael the archangel caught the devil in an inappropriate behavior pattern. And instead of him condemning the devil, him condemning Satan, he backed away and allowed the Lord to rebuke him. It was not appropriate in this context, it seems, for this spiritual presence, Satan, evil as he is, to be treated in a coarse or rude fashion. This is why, by the way, we need to be careful with hell things as much as we are to be careful with heaven things. Back in the day, When parents would quote unquote beat the hell out of their children, that was a real thing. That was not casual language. That was a sincere effort by parents to make sure that their children stayed on the right side of eternity. That's why traditionally Christians have tried to shy away from a casual use of hell and of the devil and concepts like that. Because these are spiritual entity, spiritual truths, and by taking such things casually, taking them lightly, using them as punchlines, throwaway lines, oh my God, being thrown out there for any reason whatsoever, just to fill an empty space. Such things show a profane attitude toward holy things. And we as the people of God ought to be more holy than that. The principle of holiness is revered over and over again. It's applied to God. It's applied to the people of God. And I'll go ahead and add this on here also, because this casual use of spiritual concepts is exactly that. It's casual. And usually the comeback will be, well, I didn't mean anything by that. And my response to that is, that's kind of the point. You didn't mean anything by that. These are spiritual principles, spiritual concepts, and they need to be taken seriously. Just as God treats them seriously, just as the Bible treats them seriously. Don't take my word for that, take Jesus' word. In Matthew chapter 12 and verse number 35, we read, The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they will give an accounting for in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. What he's saying there is that if you are a righteous person, righteous things are going to come out of your mouth. And if you find evil things, profane things coming out of your mouth, that's an indication of where your heart is. So be warned by Jesus. Take stock of your thoughts. Take stock of your heart and render holiness to holy principles and to a holy God. This is what I've been playing. According to the official Scrabble dictionary, there are 47 words that use the letter Q that do not use the letter U. There are 106 words in the English language with only two letters. If you're a Scrabble aficionado, that's not just random information, that's vital information. I don't play a whole lot of Scrabble these days. I went through a words with friends phase there for a while, like everybody else did when social media became a big thing. But I remember in my youth, thinking the key to playing Scrabble was coming up with the seven-letter words, using your entire deck. Wouldn't that be awesome? And it is. You tend to hit the, the special spaces where the letters count double or the words count double, that sort of thing. That can pile up a lot of points quickly. But eventually, I realized that the real secret to Scrabble is in the little words, Find yourself in a little nook and cranny where it appears that it is impossible to make any kind of move or you're stuck with a Q or a Z and you find yourself incapable of scoring any more points at all. And of course, the points that are left in your hand at the end are going to be counted against you. The real secret to Scrabble is being able to not only use those words, but use them in a devastating kind of way. The word for The letter Q is spelled Q-I, by the way. That will track in an official Scrabble game. Make sure you have your Scrabble dictionary ready for your opponents who challenge you on this. Q-I is a word, and if that manages to land on a triple letter space, or better yet, somehow you form two different words with the Q on a triple letter space, all of a sudden you've got 60 plus points that came out of nowhere, making a word that doesn't mean anything. It's meaningless seemingly, but it's not meaningless in the moment. It makes all the difference in the world. That's not just the key to scrabble. That's the key to life. The key to communication with our friends and neighbors, our enemies also, as far as that goes, knowing the right words and knowing how to use them. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 11, you know, the text may come immediately to mind in this context. Like apples of gold and settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. Knowing just the right word to use in just the right moment. Maybe you've been able to do something like that for somebody else. I venture to say you've probably been the beneficiary of someone, maybe a a parent, maybe a best friend, a brother or sister, who said exactly what needed to be said. And the converse is almost certainly true as well. They said something perhaps well-intentioned, that was just exactly what you did not want to hear in that moment. And it was just crushing and devastating because that person did not know how to use his words appropriately. When we're able to do that properly on behalf of somebody else, we're able to intervene and say something, maybe not anything of great consequence, maybe not a thousand words of deep and abiding wisdom, but just, I'm here for you. I love you. You matter. You're going to be okay. I believe in you. Little bits of wisdom, little bits of encouragement applied just in the right way by just the right person in just the right moment can change people's lives. You know it's true. You've experienced it. So have I. Knowing the right time and the right place to use these words is a powerful tool in our arsenal as we try to encourage and lift up our brothers and sisters in Christ, and our neighbors as well, especially our neighbors in Colossians chapter four, verses five and six. Conduct yourself with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. This is what wisdom does evangelism is not a cookie-cutter kind of thing. When I see a situation, this is what I say, and they either like it or they don't like it, and if they like it, then we can say this other thing, and maybe they'll like that or not like that, and then we'll move on. There's an absolute formula given, one size fits all. That wasn't the case with the Apostle Paul, the one who was all things to all men. The Apostle Paul encourages the Colossians, and he encourages us to make the most of the opportunity. Whatever that individual person is, know them as a person. Know their circumstances as best you can, at least. Don't assume things. Don't take things for granted. Rather, make the most of the opportunity. Whatever you say, make sure it's said with grace. Make sure that you season it with salt, he says here. There's a difference between being kind in our speech and sugarcoating the truth. The truth needs to be there. The truth needs to be effective but we can find a way if we work at it. And that's the trick. We don't really want to work at it sometimes. If you work at it, you can find a way to deliver the message that needs to be delivered in a way that is loving and supportive and encouraging and most likely to be received in the manner in which we intended. Look into yourselves, lest you also be tempted, as we read in Galatians chapter six and verse one. When you go to someone with the saving words of the gospel, when you go to them with correction, when you go to them with encouragement, when you go to them with solidarity, you are showing the impact that Jesus has had on your own life. I think this is part of what Peter means in 1 Peter 4 and verse 11. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. He's saying there that when we go out into the world as emissaries of Jesus Christ. We show ourselves to be exactly that. And Jesus was gentle and lowly in heart, remember, according to his own words. We also share the words of Jesus gently in humility, expressing genuine compassion and kindness for people who are in sin. Now, different situations are going to call for different approaches. There are times when we yank someone out of the fire. There are times when we crawl down into the pit and commune with someone who is in Horrible circumstances. Wisdom and a desire to do the right thing is going to help us make good decisions in these places. It's one of those ask and you shall receive kind of moments. If you feel at a loss as to what to say, say a little prayer really quick. Ask God for wisdom, ask God for good judgment, and then get in there and do your best. If you're truly motivated by love, that will come through in your communication. Galatians 2 verse 20 says that we've been crucified with Christ. It should be Jesus living in us rather than our own personal will. And Jesus is transforming us into kind and generous and loving people. If you give yourself over to Jesus, if you give yourself over to his things, you will find out that his words start coming out of your mouth. You start sounding like Jesus, and that's a good thing. You have been listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Thank you for your support. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and or on YouTube. Comments, corrections, and suggestions are always welcome. Please feel free to follow me through Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, or Instagram, or check out my webpage, www.halhammons.com. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.